0: We find ourselves this morning in Revelation chapter 19, and so if you would like to turn in your Bibles to the last book of the Bible, uh, Revelation chapter 19, we will read uh, verses 11 through 21. Revelation 19, beginning at verse 11. There are um, some things in life that we just don't like to talk about. There are some things in life that um, are uncomfortable to talk about with other people, things that we would prefer not to discuss. One of those is the terrifying judgment that will take place one day. We don't know when, but it will happen one day when Jesus Christ returns. I mean, let's face it, talking about this with other people may make us very uncomfortable, especially if you have um, close family, friends who do not know Christ. To to talk about the things that are written in this passage makes us uncomfortable. They're hard to, to discuss, hard to talk about. But this is what happens when you go through books of the Bible chapter by chapter. You you run into these passages that kind of make you squirm. The language is uncomfortable. And these are are passages I think most pastors would really prefer not to preach on because of the language, the, the graphic nature of what goes on here. Our passage this morning tells us what... What lies ahead for people who don't know Jesus? And, and you just let this language kind of hit you. And think about this. This is what will happen one day. Now one thing that we have to remember is that right now is not the day of judgment. This is not the day of God's wrath. This is still the day of salvation. This is still the day that the gospel goes out and calls all men and all women and all children to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved from the wrath that is to come. And and we have a calling. As as long as we have breath, we have a calling, both as a congregation and as Christians, we have a calling to care about this. We have a calling to, to realize that this is going to happen. And and we have a calling to to warn our family members and to warn our friends and to to warn those the Lord places in our path that this day is coming and we need to repent and believe in Christ. It is an uncomfortable passage. But it's also a passage that that presents to us this wonderful vision of Jesus and and a reminder that, that one day the the trials and the difficulties that we face in this world, the injustices that we experience in this world, those things will one day come to an end. There are essentially two parts to this passage. First of all, there is the description of the king. And then there is the king's judgment. The king, first part of the chapter or passage, and then the king's judgment. Now, before we get into this passage, it's important to remember something I told you previously about the book of Revelation, I told you when we, when we first started this book that we don't read Revelation like we do a normal book. In other words, most, um, most books flow chronologically, right? You start at the beginning, and, and as you read through the book, the, the story keeps unfolding and building. But Revelation is different. Revelation contains a, a series of visions that, that typically look at the same thing but from different angles. Uh, And so when you look at our passage this morning, it's essentially covering the same thing as the sixth seal and the seventh trumpet and the sixth and the seventh bowls. Namely, what happens when Jesus comes to judge this world, but it's looking at it again from a somewhat different perspective. So just keep that in mind, that that Revelation is not to be read chronologically that way. It's just a, a series of visions essentially looking at the same things. And so here, as our passage begins, notice that John sees a white horse. Now, what's the significance of a white horse? In the ancient world, emperors and generals would typically ride on white horses as a symbol of their power, specifically as a symbol of their conquering power. And so that's the first thing that should strike us. Whoever it is that is riding on this horse is someone of great power. He is someone who is a conqueror. He is someone who comes victoriously. He's not one who comes in meekness. He's not one who comes in gentleness. He is one who comes in conquering power. And and there's no doubt who this is. Children, this is the risen, ascended, conquering, victorious, all-powerful, all-glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And we are given this wonderful description here of who he is. John tells us nothing less than nine things. Notice what he says. First of all, he is called faithful and true. I think you'll agree with me that this is a very fitting description of Jesus. He is faithful. Christian, has Jesus ever let you down? Has he ever turned his back on you? Has he ever broken a promise that he has made to you? Secondly, Jesus is true, right? Has he ever lied to you? Has he ever deceived you? Has he ever said anything to you in his word where, where later on you went, you know what, that's not really true. You, Christian, are his dearly loved child. He came to earth for you. He, he died for all of your sins and he, he promises to, to never let you go. And he will never go back on his promises to you. He will never lie to you. He will never deceive you. He is faithful and he is true. Secondly, John tells us that he judges and makes war. Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity. He is eternal God. And as God, he is just, he is righteous, he is holy. He he cannot let sin and evil and wickedness go unpunished. And he will mete out justice on the day when he returns. And that's good news for us. You, you heard from me last week the statistics of, of all the Christians who have died throughout church history. All the Christians who, who right now in the year 2023 are being persecuted for their faith. And you imagine how, how comforting these words would have been for the first readers of this book who were suffering immense persecution. Who were losing their jobs and their property and their families and even their lives? And, and surely in the first century, these these Christians would have been thinking, Is, is following Jesus worth it? Is it all going to be for naught one day? Will we ever be vindicated? And maybe you've wondered that too. Is is following Jesus for naught? Will I ever be vindicated? Will the cause of Christ in this world be vindicated? And and here, the first century church and the 21st century church is being told, don't forget there's coming a day when Jesus will come and he will judge all of his enemies and all of the enemies of his people. And sin and wickedness will will forever be put away. Third, we are told that his eyes are like a flame of fire. We we saw this back in chapter 1. Eyes like a flame of fire teach us a couple of things. First of all, they teach us that Jesus is perfectly holy and righteous. He is a pure and perfect Savior. Children and young people and, and even adults, remember that, that Jesus is able to save you from all of your sins because he is a pure, perfect, and righteous Savior. He himself is our perfect Righteousness before God. But secondly, eyes like a flame of fire are also a reminder to us that that Jesus has perfect vision. Many of us don't have perfect vision. If I if I take my glasses off, I, I really can't tell who most of you are. And some of you probably have the same thing. You have to wear glasses all the time. Jesus has perfect vision, Jesus sees everything perfectly. And and this is a reminder to us that that no evil act, no wicked deed will go unpunished. Either those deeds will have been punished in Christ 2,000 years ago. Or if you do not believe in Christ, the unrepentant will themselves be punished for all eternity. As Hebrews 4 says, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are Open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. We judge based on appearances, don't we? Not Jesus. He perfectly knows every heart and every mind. Fourth, we are told that on his head are many diadems. Now, when we hear the word diadem, you think of a crown, right? That's the first thing that might come to your mind. A diadem is a little bit different from a crown. In in the first century, uh, a diadem was actually a ribbon. It it wasn't a crown. It was a a piece of cloth. It was a ribbon that would be tied around a person's head and, and would signify their rule over a certain area. And if a person, let's say a king or a general Had many diadems tied around their heads, it would would show that they ruled many different areas. Notice here that that Jesus has many diadems. That, That word that is translated many is a word in Greek that also means a great number. Jesus Christ has a great number of diadems on his head. It symbolizes the fact that that he rules and he reigns over all things. He is the king over all. He is the Lord over all. He rules over everything. As Abraham Kuyper has famously said, there is not one square inch in the entire universe where King Jesus does not say, that belongs to me. It all belongs to him. And so already we're we're getting this wonderful vision of the greatness of our Savior. He is faithful, he is true, he is holy. He sees all things. He's the sovereign ruler over all. Fifth, notice he has a name written that no one knows but himself. That's interesting. Um, when you read the New Testament. The New Testament tells us that Jesus has a number of different names and a number of different titles. For, for example, in addition to the name Jesus, Jesus is called God. He's called Lord. He's called Son of God. He's called the Son of Man. The titles of Jesus are are also numerous. He's called the Christ. He's called the Lamb of God. He's called the Alpha and Omega. He's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And on and on we could go. And so what does it mean that, that Jesus has a name that only he knows? I thought the New Testament has revealed all kinds of names and titles to us of Jesus. The point that's being made here is that there are some aspects... Of the Lord Jesus Christ that we will never know. There are some things about Christ that are absolutely unfathomable. That's one of God's attributes, by the way, that He is unfathomable. Children, that's a big word that that just means He cannot be fully understood. He is He is beyond our ability to fully comprehend. Think of what Paul wrote at the end of Romans 11. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Here's the point. We have to be careful not to drag Jesus down to our level not to think that he is just like us. Now, yes, he is true man. He has flesh and bones and and veins and organs just like we do, but he is also true God. And as true God, we, we will never fully comprehend him. That's what it means that he has a name that only he himself knows. Number six, we are told that he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. A couple of different schools of thought as to what this means. On the one hand, there are those who say that this refers to the blood of Christ, the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross for the forgiveness of all of our sins. It's certainly a possibility. And and how thankful, by the way, how thankful we are that he shed his blood for us. As we sing in the hymn, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. But but on the other hand, there are others who say that that this actually, this robe dipped in blood has a direct connection to something from the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 63, I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but just listen to this. In Isaiah 63, there there is a dialogue, there's a conversation between Isaiah and God. And, and Isaiah asks, Who is this who comes from Eden, from the city of Basra, with his clothing stained red? Who is this in royal robes, marching in his great strength? God responds, It is I, the Lord, announcing your salvation. It is I, the Lord, who has the power to save. Isaiah responds, and he asks again, Why are your clothes so red? As if you have been treading out grapes. And God responds, I have been treading the winepress alone. No one was there to help me. In my anger, I have trampled my enemies as if they were grapes. In my fury, I have trampled my foes. Their blood has stained my clothes. In other words, Isaiah 63 is this graphic picture Of God's judgment upon the wicked. So, so blood stained robes in Isaiah 63 are an image of God's judgment, a representation of God's judgment. And, And so, I think, given the fact that we're talking here about the second coming of Christ in Revelation 19, I think the second view is better. This is Christ coming in judgment, He's coming to avenge His people, He's coming to judge the wicked. And seventh, we are told that he is called the word of God. The idea is that God's judgment will be based on truth. It will be based on the truth of God's word. Brothers and sisters, the final judgment is not an arbitrary judgment. The final judgment is is not according to the ideas of men. Jesus is not going to pull people when he comes back and says, what do you think people should be judged for? His judgment will be based on objective truth, the truth of his word. Eighth, we are told that from his mouth comes a sharp sword. This this speaks of the severity and the finality of Christ's judgment. This isn't a slap on the wrist. This isn't a... You know, try to do better next time kind of thing. No, if you, have, if you have lived your life in rebellion against God, if you have not turned to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith alone, you will be judged and you will be given, the Bible says, an eternal punishment. And then finally, ninth, is a name written on his robe and on his thigh. This is a really interesting description because I think there's a connection to the first century. One of Rome's greatest enemies was Parthia. Parthia was, um, while well, they were often a, a thorn in Rome's side. They actually, about 150 years before the book of Revelation was written, Parthia had actually defeated Rome in battle. In in 151 A.D., about 60 years after Revelation was written, there was a a statue of the king of Parthia that was erected. And on that statue, on the king's thigh, it said, King of Kings. Now, in addition to that, we also know that the, the Parthians were famous for riding white horses And the Parthians were also known for having their kings wear diadems on their heads. And so I think John is making a connection here. I think what's happening is that that this imagery is designed to remind the Romans of their most feared enemy, the Parthians. But then to say to them as well, you ain't seen nothing yet. There is a far greater enemy to fear if you do not repent and believe in Christ. Now you might ask the question, well, why is the name written on Jesus' robe and on Jesus' thigh? A robe was a symbol of kingly majesty. The thigh was a symbol of great power. And so we're being reminded here that the one coming is a majestic king. He is a powerful king. And so if you stop at this point and take all of this in, these, these nine descriptors show us how, how wonderful and how majestic Jesus Christ really is. And there's a sense in which a proper understanding of this should, should lead us to do what John had done all the way back in chapter 1. You, you might remember that when, when John had this vision, the very first chapter of Revelation, months ago when we were in chapter 1, we saw this vision that John had of the glory of Christ. Very first chapter. And and you remember that when when John sees Jesus, he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. Now, Now maybe we don't do that physically this morning. But there's a sense in which we should be doing it in our hearts. There's a sense in which we should be in awe of Christ. If, if we hear these things, if we understand these things, and it doesn't move us, something's wrong. This is an amazing picture of the glory of Christ. This is an amazing picture, Christian, of the glory of your Savior. And I want you to notice who is with Jesus. Take a look at verse 14. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white robes, on white horses. Now who is this army? Well, it's made up of two different groups of people. First, there are angels here. The Bible makes it clear that when Jesus returns one day, his angels will accompany him. 2 Thessalonians 1.7 says, The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. And so you, you picture this in your mind. And with Jesus are innumerable angels. But there's more to it than that. Secondly, this, this army is also made up of God's redeemed people. If you have your Bible open, look back to chapter, or verse 8 of the same chapter. Chapter 19, verse 8. It says, it was granted her to clothe herself, notice, with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This is talking about God's people. It's talking about us at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And and that description there in verse 8 sounds a whole lot like the description in verse 14, doesn't it? Verse 14 talks about fine linen that is white and pure. The point is that when Jesus returns, accompanying him will not only be innumerable angels, but so will also all of his people. So will you. You are in this scene coming with Christ. What a glorious day that will be when the Lord Jesus returns. With his angels and with all of his people. And that brings us to the second thing, and that is the king's judgment. John sees an angel standing in the sun, probably a picture of everyone can see this, everyone knows this is happening. And he's crying out to the birds, flying in the sky. Notice what he says in verse 17. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. See You see a contrast here, don't you? Both a contrast and a connection, I want you to notice. First of all, the contrast is, is what we looked at last Sunday morning. Last Sunday morning, we looked at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The, the marriage supper of the Lamb is that, that wonderful feast and wonderful celebration where God's people will enjoy intimacy and communion with Christ for all eternity. But the contrast here is that you have the birds of the air being called to come for another feast, another supper, and, and basically remove the flesh of all those who have been judged. Again, this is this is graphic. In the Old Testament, to to give someone's flesh to the birds was a symbol of defeat. It was a symbol that that you had been totally conquered. And that's the connection that we see here. In, In Ezekiel chapter 39, for example, God says that He will give His enemies over to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the fields to be devoured. In that same chapter, God says to Ezekiel, I want you to speak to the birds and I want you to speak to the beasts and tell them to assemble and come for the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for them. I I want them to come and eat flesh and drink blood. Symbol of judgment. You might remember what, what David said to Goliath that day, 1 Samuel chapter 17. Maybe the most famous story in the Old Testament. David and Goliath. David is standing before this 10 foot tall Goliath. And he says to Goliath, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And I will strike you down and I will cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Again, giving dead bodies and flesh to the birds is a symbol of defeat. The point is that here in Revelation 19, this is the ultimate fulfillment of that. In a very graphic and even gruesome way, we are reminded of the utter defeat of the wicked, the utter defeat that they will experience that day when Christ returns. I pray that none of you in this room will know and experience that utter defeat. I pray that, that you will, if you have not done so and are not doing so now, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved from this day. the, the wicked continue to shake their fist at God The wicked continue to say, You will not rule over us. You will not tell us what to do. But one day they will realize the futility of their rebellion. They will realize and they will know and they will experience complete defeat. Passage ends by by telling us about three different groups. First of all, there is the beast. You might remember that the beast is a a picture of all godless, anti-Christian governments. The the beast is a symbol of, of governments in this world today and all throughout history who have trampled upon God's word, who have said things like men can be women and women can be men and there's nothing you can say about it. Symbol of, of governments that have brought great injustice upon their citizens. Symbol of governments that have persecuted God's people. That's the beast. And, and one day, this passage tells us the beast will be captured and thrown into the lake of fire. Then there's the false prophet. The false prophet is a, uh, represents all who have, been, who have brought false teaching into this world all who have preached false gospels, all who have deceived people with error and untruth. You go to the, even the Christian bookstore. I don't even know if there are Christian bookstores anymore. But if you, if you look for Christian books, some of the stuff that, that passes for truth is an abomination. God's people even within churches are being destroyed by false doctrine, false gospels. And and one day, all of that will come to an end because the false prophet will be captured and he too will be thrown into the lake of fire. So all godless government will be done. All false teaching will be done. And third, there are those who have followed the beast and followed the false prophet and followed the dragon. These are those who have lived their lives in rebellion against God and who've said, I don't need God, I don't need Jesus, I don't need his truth, they too will be judged and brought to nothing. And that will be it. The great war, the greatest war that this world has ever known, a war that has existed all the way from Genesis chapter 3 until now, That war will be over. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to say to you that that this is a very sober reminder of what will happen one day. That's where this world is headed. One day, Christ will come. And and if you're here this morning, I, I need to say this again, or you're watching online. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, if, if you're sitting there and you're living in, in rebellion against God and an unbelief against him, it will not go well for you on that day. You will be consumed by God's wrath. I, I urge you and beg you to run to Christ I speak, I believe, to a vast majority, if not all of you, who trust Christ as your Savior. And and I want to encourage you this morning as we end this passage, I want to encourage you not to fear. I want to encourage you not to be afraid of this day. That's because Jesus took God's wrath in your place. In other words, I'm not saying to you, don't be afraid because you've been a really good person. You've attended church and you've done all these things. I'm not saying that. I'm saying to you today, though, brothers and sisters, you don't need to fear this day. You don't need to fear God's wrath because Jesus took it for you. You see, instead of fear and and dread and worry and anxiety, For the Christian thought of the second coming of Jesus comforts us. That's exactly what Paul told the church in Thessalonica in 2 Thessalonians chapter one. Here are these Christians, and we've been looking at this church on Sunday nights, but here are these Christians in Thessalonica and they're suffering. They are being bombarded with persecution and hatred and mockery and scorn and and Paul writes the second letter to them and he says look there's coming a day when God will provide rest for you you're being persecuted But one day the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven and you will have rest. He will come, Paul says, with his mighty angels in flaming fire and he will bring judgment on those who do not know God and on those who refuse to obey the good news of the Lord Jesus. And they will be punished, Paul says, with eternal destruction, forever separated from the Lord, forever separated from his glorious power. When he comes on that day, he will receive glory from his holy people. He will receive praise from all who believe. And then Paul says, this includes you. Because you have believed in him. Brothers and sisters, this includes you. When he comes that day, you will not fear You will not be afraid. You will not shrink back in terror. You will not, like the wicked, cry for the rocks to fall upon you. You will praise him. You will rejoice in that day because you will say, Jesus, you took this wrath for me so that I will never face it. What a joy that day will be. No more persecution. No more wickedness in this world. No more injustice. No more corrupt politicians. No more sin in my own life. No more death. No more sorrow. Eternal fellowship with our God. That's what awaits us. That's what awaits all who believe in Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. And we thank you for comfort it brings to us. Lord, we pray now that you would use us as your instruments in this world to warn those who do not know Christ to flee to him. And Father, we, we long for that day when evil and wickedness and sin and death will be put away forever. And we will be forever with you. Lord, help us to, to live our lives now with that perspective and to orient our lives with the priorities of of those who know that there is a better life to come. We thank you and we praise you for your incredible grace to us and we pray this in Jesus' name.